0: Welcome to the GRF On The Go podcast. The subject matter experts at GRF CPAs and Advisors created this podcast to offer insights on current topics, as well as new ideas and best practices that your team can apply today. This podcast was originally presented as a live webinar. CPE information provided during the podcast is no longer valid, but if you're interested in watching the video version of this session or accessing the slide deck, visit our website at grfcpa.com forward slash events. Enjoy the episode and remember to subscribe for future content. All right, well,
1: it looks like we're holding steady, so we'll go ahead and get started. All right, well, thank you, everyone. Just wanted to thank everybody for being with us here today. Welcome to today's webinar, part two of our three-part series over how to set up a world-class whistleblower program. Thank you for anybody who who joined us for the first session back in, I think, um, June or July. Today is our follow-up fireside chat with Jeff Tenenbaum. So my name is Mac Lillard. I'm a senior manager with GRF in the Risk and Advisory Services Department. I'll be today's moderator. Um, I've been with GRF CPAs and Advisors for about nine years, actually just over nine years, I actually celebrated my nine year anniversary on September 2nd. Uh, started out in our external audit practice. Um, and then after taking a few examinations, uh, getting a, a few different certifications, my interest pulled me in the direction of fraud and forensic auditing, as well as internal auditing, cybersecurity, enterprise risk management, and the other pillars of our risk advisory services department. So very happy to be here with you all today. And I'm extremely excited to introduce our guest for today's fireside chat, Jeff Tenenbaum. So Jeff Tenenbaum is one of the nation's leading nonprofit attorneys and is also an accomplished author, lecturer, commentator, and expert witness on nonprofit legal matters. So as managing partner of the nationally recognized Washington, D.C.-based Tenenbaum Law Group, a five-attorney boutique law firm focused exclusively on the legal needs of nonprofits, Jeff counsels senior management and boards of directors of his clients on the broad array of legal and sensitive business and governance issues affecting trade and professional associations, charities, and other nonprofits. For 19 years, Jeff practiced law at the Venable Law Firm and chaired its nonprofit practice for most of that time. Among numerous other honors and awards, Jeff was the 2006 recipient of the American Bar Association's Outstanding Nonprofit Lawyer of the Year Award. He is one of Only five lawyers in the prestigious U.S. Legal 500s Not-for-Profit Hall of Fame and has been ranked as a best lawyer for nonprofits and charities, law nationally by U.S. News and World Report every year since 2012. Jeff, thank you so much time for volunteering your time to be here with us today. I know our attendees are going to get a lot out of hearing your expertise. Thanks for having me, Mac. Looking forward to it. Right, so with that, just wanted to jump into a little bit of background about GRF for those of you who aren't too familiar with our firm, but GRF is a full-service accounting and advisory firm uh, based out of the Washington, D.C. area. Um, Our firm provides a wide array of services from your traditional audit and tax services, also looking at risk and advisory services, accounting technology solutions that helps our clients implement new technology solutions to streamline their finance and accounting platforms, Traditional bookkeeping and outsourced accounting and advisory services. And while we work with all sorts of organizations from nonprofits to for profit companies, schools, government contractors, publicly traded companies, our niche is within the nonprofit and INGO space. We've been in operation for over 40 years. Again, starting out as your traditional accounting, audit, and tax firm. Um, and over the past decade or so, have really worked up to build up our accounting technology solutions and risk and advisory solutions. So specifically, our risk and advisory services group focuses on internal audit, cybersecurity, risk management, and fraud and forensics. Um, But it's kind of hard to talk about any of these topics really without looping in all of the the other pillars of our risk advisory services group. So today, we are here to talk about fraud and forensics as it relates to building your world-class whistleblower program, but we'll also talk a little, little bit about the investigation process, which... Um, brings in internal audit. We'll talk about some new technology solutions from cloud-based whistleblower platforms, which brings in IT cybersecurity. And then obviously just talking about general fraud risk management and how you can implement some deterrent controls uh, to just help prevent and detect fraud at your organization. And then lastly, before we go ahead and jump into our recap from session one, I just wanted to go through some housekeeping items Um, So participants who are seeking CPE credit today must complete and submit a short evaluation survey that's going to appear automatically following the webinar. You're also going to receive three CPE words throughout the webinar today while we administer little attendance check ins throughout the webinar. So these will kind of look like polling questions. We'll announce that these are being launched, but we simply ask you to check in just to verify that you're still there and that you're listening. And then again, if you are looking to receive CPE credit, make sure that in addition to to checking into those attendance check-ins that you're also jotting down the three CPE words as they're given. Those will pop up in the chat function just in case anybody doesn't catch them or, or mishears them. And then before we get started, I would also just like to invite everybody to join us for part three of this webinar series. Uh, For, again, anybody who was able to join us for part one, we really just talked about um, the the initial steps of creating your world-class whistleblower program, the different avenues, whether it be a hotline, direct reporting method, or a cloud-based program. We're going to talk a little bit about a recap to that today, but... Then with our fireside chat with Jeff, we're really going to go into the legal and compliance requirements um, that go into building your world-class whistleblower program. And then during part three, we're going to do a deep dive into the investigation process, walk through some do's and don'ts about how to properly follow up on a whistleblower allegation in a timely manner and make sure that you're reporting out to all of the relevant parties. So stay tuned for more on that. Uh, You will get informational emails about that following today's webinar. And then one other thing about today's webinar, because we do get lots of questions about this, this will be posted online afterwards. We're taking a recording, you will get the slide deck with all of our resources, and then you will also get a recording of today's webinar. So with that, I just wanted to jump into a little bit of a recap from session one, for anybody who wasn't able to join us for that. So just talking a little bit about the current landscape. So every year more goes from physical to digital as organizations work to digitally transform their business processes and incorporate new technologies into the financial and accounting environment. Um, So frauds can be perpetrated within the organization. They can be perpetrated outside of the organization. Um, and it's really important to have all these different controls and make sure that these new technologies aren't actually creating additional liabilities to the organization. Um, and again, another thing that we really noticed is just when these new technologies were implemented, there's kind of a, a lost sight of the basics, making sure that the appropriate controls were inherent in those new environments. Um, so that's, again, something that we'll touch on briefly today. There's also been a lot of changes in the frameworks and the regulations around this, whether that's the Institute of Internal Auditors Going from the three lines of defense to just the three lines model and really focusing on that integration of risk management into all of the different lines of defense for the organization and making sure that that doesn't just sit somewhere siloed within the organization and that it's really a requirement of every key department leader, making sure that everyone is a risk manager for the organization. Also been changes to the Coso Fraud Risk Management Framework. They've recently released their second edition with the help of the ACFE or the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. They worked hand in hand to develop this new fraud risk management framework as a result of the not only the increase in fraud, but all the different changes to the different schemes that fraudsters are utilizing to take advantage of their organization's infrastructure or of other organizations infrastructure. We also touched on the new European Union whistleblower directive that provided some updates um, to just clearly outline the organization's responsibility for timely follow-up of any whistleblower allegations. So the new whistleblower directive, um, it provided a lot more information about non-retaliation and the protections that whistleblowers are provided. And it also outlined a timeline for whistleblower allegations to actually be followed up on and reported out on. And then lastly, just as it relates to the current landscape, there's all sorts of enhanced reputational risk for organizations as a result of social media and this 24 hour news cycle that we live in. Um, organizations can be, you know, if, if anything does happen, whether it's a fraud, whether it's a cybersecurity breach, whether it's a, key member of the organization or a key C-suite executive doing something on their personal account, there's all sorts of enhanced reputational risks as a result of everybody's use of social media um, and just how quickly certain issues can be brought to the attention of the public. So if we think about fraud controls, those that we can put into place to actually stop fraud from ever occurring, whether that be a deterrent or whether that be a preventative control, those are really gonna be the most valuable controls to us, right, in theory we would never need a detective control if we could prevent fraud from ever happening. So that's where fraud deterrents and those preventative controls really provide their value as opposed to being reactive. More and more organizations are now becoming proactive against fraud and implementing controls that can serve not only as a detective control, but they really get their primary value from serving as a deterrent. So if you're a, you know, put yourself in the shoes of a fraudster and you're between, um, Taking a new position at two organizations, the organization that does proactive fraud risk assessments is testing controls on a monthly basis, has a reputation for following up on and taking corrective action or disciplinary action against any potential fraudsters you're more likely to stay away from that organization than the organization that doesn't have those kinds of controls and right. Somewhere where you feel that your opportunity to commit and conceal fraud is going to be an easier road traveled, correct? Um, So again, these, these deterrent controls, which is one of which is having a defined whistleblower process and a mechanism for anonymous and confidential reporting is extremely important in today's environment. Again, just because of that increase in the volume and the severity of fraud that we're seeing. So beyond fraud or just financial statement fraud, because that is typically what people think of when they hear whistleblower, um, you think of financial statement fraud or you know misappropriation of organization's assets. Um, but for, you know these whistleblower programs they really go pretty far beyond that. Um, So looking at workplace safety violations that can be reported through this environmental protection, ESG is a very hot button issue right now it's getting a lot of buzz, so this actually helps support those types of initiatives, uh, whether it be your governance, uh, making, you know, showing that commitment to following up on uh, whistleblower allegations in a timely manner, whether it's your social requirements to protect the public good and those that your organization serves. Um, again, these, these whistleblower hotlines provide a lot of value to just demonstrating to the public good that, um, again, your organization is doing everything they can to prevent and detect fraud. It can also prevent safety and quality issues as well as academic misconduct, depending on the industry that you work in. And then we talked briefly just about where to start. Where to start, we always recommend performing a baseline assessment of your policies and procedures to ensure that they're reflective of the controls and processes that are actually operationalized currently at your organization. Any discrepancies would then be documented, updated accordingly, and approved by the appropriate authoritative body, whether that be management or the executive or the uh, board of directors. We covered some of these baseline policies in detail, the code of conduct, whistleblower policy, conflict of interest and information security policy in our last session. So if you want more information over that, I would direct you to to the recording and the link on our website. But for now, let's just focus on on recapping the whistleblower policy. Um, So these elements here can be applied to any of the policies I just noted on the previous slide, but we're gonna talk specifically about the whistleblower policy right now. You know, Unfortunately, one of the things we see in practice is just Uh, a lack of sufficient detail in these supporting policies. So maybe one time we'll get like a, a one paragraph blurb for a conflict of interest policy or for a whistleblower program. And this lack of appropriate detail actually reduces the reliability of that control process And in some instances can actually make the difference between being able to substantiate a whistleblower allegation and not being able to substantiate that um, as a result of that lack of detail within the policy. So if a policy lacks sufficient detail and is left up to interpretation, it's difficult to prove whether an individual knowingly violated policy and procedure or whether they mistakenly or accidentally violated policy and procedure. So defining the purpose of a policy who it applies to, defining the scope as to um, what that applies to, looking at the definitions, whether you properly identify what a whistleblower constitutes, what a complaint is, what a conflict of interest is actually boils down to. Uh, is again, really important for actually enforcing those controls and communicating them to the employees throughout the organization. And then also having a step-by-step process For reporting those, making sure that somebody outside of the process who isn't familiar with it would actually be able to follow that step-by-step process and submit an allegation or a complaint if need be uh, is again another really important aspect of that policy. There are a couple other items in there about confidentiality, making sure that a whistleblower's confidentiality or or anonymity will be protected to the full extent possible. Non-retaliation, having a zero tolerance policy against retaliating against whistleblowers. Again, the new European Union whistleblower directive really honed in on that, providing all these protections to whistleblowers, uh, whether they report confidentially or whether they're reporting completely anonymously. And then similar to the reporting process also having a defined step by step process as to how you will ultimately follow up on those whistleblower allegations, how you will uh, perform any of your investigations and again we'll talk about that in detail in part three of our webinar series. And then we also talked about the different avenues that organizations use for reporting whistleblower allegations or receiving these we talked about direct reporting channels through your supervisors or through management we talked about hotlines which are right now the the most popular method of receiving and cataloging whistleblower allegations. And then we talked about online cloud-based whistleblower platforms, which is really growing in popularity due to the user-friendliness, due to the anonymity and the case management provided by these organizations. They're also highly customizable. They allow you to build out templates, assign user access rights with relative ease. And again, it provides that end-to-end case management process um, for the organization all within one system so that you're not using a hotline and a separate case management system and then something different for maybe communicating with your attorneys or for communicating with the whistleblowers. It's all in one platform um, under one solution. And then we also just talked about doing your due diligence as you're vetting any new Um, avenues, software providers, um, or as you're just working to enhance your whistleblower process. So looking at due diligence, making sure that if you are using a cloud-based solution, that they haven't had issues with breaches in the past. If they're a newer organization, making sure that they're financially viable and they're not going to, a year into your relationship, go out of business and leave you high and dry without a reporting mechanism making sure that they're able to actually provide proof of compliance with best practice frameworks, whether they're ISO certified, NIST, CIS, whether they're undergoing penetration testing, to just make sure that again, this platform is gonna be as secure as possible because the sensitivity of the information that's going to ultimately be holding there could again, create significant reputational issues um, or just significant health and safety issues for those reporting, should that information be breached and get out. And then lastly, making sure that it's actually been reviewed and approved by the appropriate individuals within your organization. If it's your IT department's responsibility or your managed service provider's responsibility to vet these software providers and provide sign-off on it, making sure that they, again, have been uh, reviewed and approved by the appropriate levels of management. Other items for consideration when looking at different software providers is looking at the user-friendliness and the ease of managing user access rights making sure that those user access rights are managed on the principle of least, of least privilege so that you're not just granting too much access to everybody who's going to ultimately have access to that system. And again, just minimize the access to that sensitive information. How well you're able to actually customize that to your office or to your organization, if you're able to break that down by office, region, department, again, whatever's going to make the most sense for your structure to make sure that when you do implement this, that is not creating an administrative burden trying to field all of these different allegations, that those allegations are making their way to the appropriate personnel to be followed up on in a timely manner. And then lastly, again, just what are, the, what are the additional kind of functionality that, uh, that software provider provides, um, whether it's, it's an end-to-end case management system, if it allows for real-time communication with the whistleblower, um, or if again, this is really just a reporting platform that will help you catalog these but in terms of managing communicating if you'll need to find a uh, a different platform or a different solution um, and build those all into one comprehensive program and then lastly we just touched on the benefits of a whistleblower program so it's a public signal of committing ever of commitment to integrity and social responsibility again if you're trying to improve your esg initiative and demonstrate to the public good that you're Working to be proactive and uh, preventing, detecting fraudulent activity, a whistleblower program is just one step in the right direction. It allows for the prevention and mitigation of liability as well as financial losses. The earlier you're able to detect something, the more you're going to be able to mitigate any associated liability, whether that's reputational damage or whether that's financial losses through misappropriation or financial statement misrep- misrepresentation. It also allows you for continuous improvement in compliance and risk management. Again, just the earlier you're able to detect something, the earlier you're able to then correct it and improve upon your processes, minimize the risk of somebody taking advantage of that. Allows you to strengthen your reputation, again, through that public signal of commitment. Um, Also helps to strengthen your organization's culture. Um, If your employees know that management, the C-suite, the entire organization overall is committed to this zero tolerance policy against fraud, against retaliation for whistleblowers, that's going to give your employees more confidence in your ability to lead and it's going to give everybody just more confidence in the organization's mission, vision and strategic direction overall. So with that, that will wrap up our recap, and I'm excited to, to just go ahead and jump into this fireside chat. Um, so I wanted to just put this up to just give everybody a little bit of an idea of kind of how the next 40 minutes or so here are going to run. You know, again, we are here today to address what's what's top of mind for you all, um, what keeps you up at night, what concerns you, what questions you, your stakeholders, your board is asking about your whistleblower program. So. We put together some questions and some discussion that our clients are routinely asking us of when trying to implement new controls or when trying to improve their whistleblower program. But please feel free to use the chat and the Q&A functions um, to submit any questions that you might have, any questions, comments. We're gonna do our best to address those as we go through here. Um, but I did also put down a little rough breakdown of timing here. You know, We do have a few different sections that we would like to get through. So if at any point I may need to just advance the conversation forward, you know, I, I don't want anybody to feel as if we're ignoring their questions. If we don't get the, the chance to address that question, we are keeping a record of the chat and of the Q and A function. So if there's anything we're not able to address through our discussion, we will do our best to follow up with everybody after the webinar to address any of those questions that came in. But again, we're here for you all. So please feel free to use that chat function and that Q&A function as much as you'd like. If you have something unrelated to what we're talking about, feel free to throw it in there. If you have a follow-up question over any of the comments or, or discussions, and please also feel free to follow or throw that in there. But with that, I'm going to go ahead and pull my screen down. And just again, thank Jeff for, for being here and volunteering your time with us right um, so again you know Jeff when we were kind of figuring out you know what we wanted to cover in this we wanted to really address the the questions or the topics that are posed to us through in practice by our clients um, so again we're going to start off with just addressing some legal and compliance questions that were routinely posed with um, through our clients so the first question is really just related to kind of you know, after, after attending this webinar, maybe even part three of the series, you know, where do we start? How do we get this spun up? So one of the first questions that we're routinely posed with is where does the whistleblower program sit? Do we engage the board? Does this sit with the C-suite, our management team? Should we be forming a council or letting this sit with, with our legal counsel or our general counsel? Um, so Jeff, what would you advise to any of your clients who are just really starting out on, on this journey to build
2: up their whistleblower program? So, Mac, it's it's a good question. Um, First off, um, let me kind of define how I view whistleblower programs more generally. Um, And I have, I've been doing this for 27 years, representing nonprofits. I've conducted and led many, many internal investigations, just wrapped up two, actually, for two different nonprofit clients. Um, And when, when, You're, as you know, GRF, uh, you know, understanding where you're coming from, it's understandable that there's a heavy focus on um, whistleblower programs to detect and and try to prevent fraud and embezzlement. Uh, But like you said in one of your slides a few minutes ago, you know, there are other uh, types of bad conduct, other than fraud and investment, that whistleblower programs can be helpful in uh, in, in rooting out, in uh, rectifying, um, and helping to protect the organization, protect employees, mitigate liability, and financial risk, et cetera. Um, and the one area that was notably missing from that slide is an area where we deal with probably more whistleblower complaints than anything else as outside counsel. And that's in the employment area and the employment law area, HR violations, uh, you know, bad conduct by or alleged bad conduct by supervisors uh, or even fellow employees or other things like that. Uh, it's to me, at least in the things that I get brought into an in outside counsel from our nonprofit clients, that's the number one category by far. And that's a very different type of whistleblower complaint than say someone who's blowing the whistle on fraud and embezzlement by a fellow employee or by an outside vendor or by a board member. And I deal with actually one of the investigations I just wrapped up. We're about to start phase two of the investigation and that uh, uh, alleges it's a whistleblower complaint against certain board members. Um, and things like that so we're going to be diving into those things first then all of these are very different types of programs so when you say where does it sit um you know first off it really needs to sit everywhere is as i think the short answer uh because it you need to be sure that it applies to all of these different contexts if someone wants to blow the whistle on 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 an employee regarding fraud and embezzlement or an outside vendor Or if they want to blow the whistle on you know alleged board member conduct you know bad conduct or conflicts of interest or improperly benefiting from the organization uh or just general allegations about harassment or discrimination or other things like that you need to be sure that it can cover all of those things and that once the whistleblower complaint is received that it's dealt with in the appropriate manner in through an appropriate process and that's not necessarily the same for all of those things you know allegations against the board member are likely going to be dealt with very differently than allegations about fraud or discrimination against a fellow employee. You know, So, if, for instance, if it does not involve the CEO and it's an employment-related matter um, and the allegation does not involve the CEO, typically the CEO is going to be the one kind of running point on the investigation because the CEO is generally, or one of his or her designees um, is going to be running point because that person is, is principally charged with overseeing the affairs of all other employees within the organization. Whereas if it's allegations regarding board members, then it's more likely that the board chair or the audit committee or an ethics committee, if there is one, um, you know, is going to be taking the lead on that. But one common element. Um, generally, and I'm not saying this from a selfish perspective because I'm an attorney, but having legal counsel involved in where that whistleblower program sits and how it gets administered is really critical. If you have in-house and in-house general counsel, that's obviously the logical place to start. Um, I serve, and I'm in private practice, so, so I serve as outside general counsel to a lot of my clients, get brought in to conduct a lot of these investigations because I have a lot of experience with it. Uh, we'll talk uh, a little bit later about some of the important benefits and reasons to involve legal counsel. But in terms of where it sits, legal counsel has to have a central role in that. So sorry, that was a long answer to a short question, but hopefully everyone found that helpful.
1: No, no, that was that was great insight. And yeah, totally agree that, you know, this really does need to involve everybody. Because like you said, each allegation is going to be different. There's going to be a different engagement team. There's going to be different subject matter experts within the firm that you need to draw upon. Um, So I guess just to follow up on that, and it maybe sounds like you you mentioned in-house legal counsel would be the best place for this to kind of start. In terms of somebody who would be managing the, the hotline or managing the cloud-based platform who essentially might be the first or the first two individuals who receive a whistleblower allegation or are privy to that information, would you recommend, uh, if if feasible, that that sits with in-house counsel or outside legal counsel, or again, maybe a, a counsel of
2: C-suite or um, senior management? It would, not, it would not be typical to have that sit with outside counsel. I've never seen that. It's certainly possible. But, um, you know, one thing you want to keep in mind is and this is one of the elements of a good whistleblower program: is you always need to have multiple lines of reporting, right? If if the reporting all go, it only goes to one platform, and the in-house general counsel is the one who, who first reviews all those reports. If the allegations are against the general counsel, that's a big problem, right? So you want to have multiple. You know, like like you suggested, perhaps, you know, having it sit with the entire, you know, the senior uh, leadership team, the senior executive team, you know, maybe all incoming uh, complaints go to all of them, as well as perhaps the board chair. Remember, we're talking about nonprofits, so don't underestimate, forget the importance of volunteer leadership and the directors and volunteer officers and whatnot um and it's it's a it's a very important kind of check and balance because i have seen situations where you know the the ceo or executive director was you know in cahoots with several other senior staff and outside vendors in a fraud and embezzlement scheme and just reporting it to this to the ceo and the senior staff um, might not do anything if that's the situation so again you want to have multiple Multiple people to ensure that there's multiple avenues for reporting, not just one avenue, and that when those reports come in, if it's through an online platform or a hotline, uh, that that the uh, reports go to multiple people. Okay, great.
1: Yeah, thank you for that follow up. And yep, that's that's what we always advise our clients is that at you know at minimum two people should be receiving every initial allegation to make sure, like you said, that there's no opportunity for collusion. These shouldn't be people that work closely with one another and can communicate, you know, again, just trying to minimize that, that opportunity for collusion. I think you actually kind of addressed one of my follow-up questions was, you know, if you had seen structures that didn't work, and I think you kind of already alluded to this a little bit with, you know, you don't see it sit with outside counsel, you don't see it with sitting with just one individual. Is any other structures?
2: That's the, that's the key hallmark of structures I've seen that don't work, is that they're too narrow. Um, I have another client that um, the uh, the two senior officers on the board um, got a complaint from an employee about the CEO. Small staff uh, organization, uh, complaint about the CEO's conduct, um, and actually from a couple different staff people. And the and the organization's employee handbook said that all staff complaints have to first go to the CEO before anything else can happen with them. So the two senior officers not having a lot of experience with this, um, you know, looked at the employee handbook and said, sorry, we can't talk to you about this. You gotta go and report it to the CEO first. Um, And of course the allegations are all about the CEO. And um, later employees came back to the officers and said look you know this is about the ceo we can't report it to, to him uh we need we, we need you to look into it and finally that's when they brought me in you know as outside counsel to, to do an internal investigation which we did um and the ceo ended up departing the organization later um but that's an example of a bad <laughs> complaint process you know th- again that regard is regarding employment related complaints. But like I said, I see those more than anything else. Um, and you need to have multiple avenues of reporting. So the biggest um, no, 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 I think in any structure is having it be too narrow.
1: Right. Yeah. Thank you again for that, for that background and insight. All right. But with that, let's go ahead and jump into the next question. Um, and this is actually one that somebody posed to us in the chat function during our initial part one of this uh, how to build a world-class whistleblower program so i think people will will find this extremely beneficial um but that next question is what kind of legal protections are whistleblowers of non-public entities entitled to
2: yeah it's it's a great question um and this is yet another area of law where um the u.s uh united states at the federal level the national level um is um, kind of far behind the EU. Uh, we see it with privacy regulation like GDPR in the US. There is no overall overarching kind of federal consumer privacy protection law, um, and we see it here too with whistleblower protection. Um, EU has that 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 whistleblower directive that you were talking about, Mac. Um, we we don't have any such laws in the US at the federal. level. So what is the kind of the framework? Well, let me we kind of talk you through a few things. So at the federal level, there are two laws that are relevant. But from the nonprofit community's perspective, they're, they're relatively narrow in their applicability. The first one is not applicable at all. So this, there is a federal law called the Whistleblower Protection Act, but it only applies and provides protection to federal employees who report wrongdoing within the federal government. So again, that's not going to apply uh, to nonprofit organizations. Uh, There is, of course, the Federal Sarbanes-Oxley Act, uh, which provides protection to employees of um, publicly traded companies and certain privately held subsidiaries or affiliates of publicly traded companies. Again, that doesn't apply to to nonprofits. Um, There is another federal law called the False Claims Act that I know you're familiar with, Um, the False Claims Act, as well as a law called the Defense Authorization Act. And both of those laws provide protection to private individuals. Uh, That blow the whistle of fraud and embezzlement in connection with federal funding federal programs. Um, And so for a nonprofit like many of your clients and our clients that receive federal grants cooperative agreements and contracts and are receiving federal funds. If a private individual, including an employee of a nonprofit, you know, suspects that there's there's fraud or the wrongdoing going on against uh, and with respect to federal money. And they blow the whistle. Uh, there's certain protections that are involved, and you can also file lawsuits. And if you're successful, actually, recover a uh, portion of the proceeds from that. But again, that's relatively narrow. Now, at the state level, um, there are a number of states that do have, you know, somewhat broader protections for whistleblowers in different contexts, including in the employment context and others, including health, health and safety violations, kind of fraud, waste, corruption. Discrimination, et cetera, health violations. Um, but they're very much state specific. Uh, there, there's no kind of common denominator. There's no model act. You know, there's all uh, American Bar Association puts out a number of different model laws that get adopted by, the, by states, like the Model Nonprofit Corporation Act. None of that exists in this area. Um, but there are some state specific protections. But to me, probably the most important protection for whistleblowers in the nonprofit context, the most widely applicable at least. I don't want to say most important, but most widely applicable, it's going to be self-imposed restrictions from the whistleblower policy itself. In fact, a lot of these policies are called whistleblower protection policies, not just whistleblower policies. It has all the elements that you talked about earlier, but that prohibition against retaliation against whistleblowers, to me, is is easily one of the, you know, top one, two, or three most important provisions in any whistleblower policy. You can't retaliate against the whistleblower. And having such a policy, and frankly, it's also, like, for instance, in the employment context, if someone gets fired because they blew the whistle, a, it might be a violation of the organization's own policies. But someone is also likely going to be able to bring a claim for what's called wrongful termination, which covers a whole host of things. Uh, but it certainly includes, if you get fired for blowing the whistle at an organization, And you bring a wrongful uh, discharge termination claim suit, um, you know, or a charge with the EEOC, um, and you can prove that it was because you blew the whistle that you were terminated, you're going to be very successful in in that charge or that that litigation. So, you know, to that extent, you know, existing uh, employment uh, uh, laws that, that protect against discrimination, harassment and other things, including for wrongful discharge are certainly going to be applicable. But it is so important to be sure you don't retaliate against the whistleblower. Now, that being said, I have another example from another client um, where employee blew the whistle against the um, against the, the C- CEO, um, brought uh, half a dozen different complaints. Uh, board officers brought me in to conduct an internal investigation, which we did. Um, could not corroborate any of the employee's complaints, um, and but now part part of you know through that investigation we determined that there were a number of performance deficiencies with the employee, um, and you know as a result um, you know that employee uh, is is going to be subject to some internal discipline. I can't get into the details, but the point is you always have to walk that fine line. Just because someone blows the whistle, I have another one too where um, uh, conducted an internal investigation, um, interviewed uh, a number of different employees. And one of the employees is under a performance improvement plan right now. Um, Now, just because that employee you know, is uh, blowing the whistle, bringing complaints, doesn't mean that employee is subject to permanent protection and can't be terminated if they don't perform well under the performance improvement plan, not at all. We just need to be able to show and prove that the termination was because of performance, not because of blowing the whistle. So again, long answer to a short question, but it's a complicated area of law. And all of these different things kind of come into play when you're analyzing what sort of protections exist for whistleblowers. Yeah, absolutely.
1: appreciate that. And yeah, you know, it's, it's almost a little worrisome, just the fact that the, the U.S. lags so far behind, you know, so, um, some other countries. As far as you know, is there, you know, do you see something like the EU whistleblower directive being released in the U.S.? Is that something that's that's in process, on the docket, or as far as you know, not even
2: being considered? <laughs> and that, that's not a, doesn't seem to be a high priority for Congress. Okay. Uh, you know, and, and there are other, you know, protections in federal law, like I, I, I don't know uh, offhand, that's really not my area of focus, but like OSHA, the Occupational Safe and, and Health Administration, um, you know, likely has uh, rules uh, and perhaps even in the statute, you know, that protect whistleblowers who report health and safety violations at uh, at uh, U.S. companies and things like that. But in terms of some broad overarching whistleblower protection law like exists in the EU and in their directive, um, I I would not see that coming anytime soon. Okay, got it. Well, kind of following up on, you know, the initial
1: steps um, when receiving a whistleblower allegation, uh, a lot of my clients ask, you know, at what point do we have the responsibility to report this out to a, a donor or a funder, or report this out to the authorities to, to follow up on the matter or take legal action? Um, at what point would you typically advise your client to to report this outside of the organization or the key stakeholders?
2: So that's always a, a tough question. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what we what I generally say is that you want to conduct when we say, when I say internal investigation, what I generally mean is no government agencies involved in conducting an investigation, federal, state, or local. Rather, the organization conducting its own investigation. Now, usually what we're talking about is an independent internal investigation, usually led by outside counsel for, for independence purposes. Um, and there's, I'll talk more about that um, in, in, in a few minutes about like I said, the, the role and importance and how to utilize legal counsel, especially outside counsel. Uh, but having outside counsel conduct that internal independent investigation first, come up with a finding. And sometimes that involves, um, like in a, in a fraud and embezzlement when we retained an outside um, CPA firm to conduct a forensic audit, which is very common in, in as you know, in fraud and embezzlement investigations. Uh, but regardless, figure out what the situation is. Um, uh, determine you know uh, everything from from liability and culpability to uh, potential recovery if it's fraud and embezzlement um, to um, whatever remediation measures have to take place if it's disciplinary termination of employees or things like that, and then kind of determine after that if there's any external reporting that is required. So, you know, in an instance involving significant fraud and embezzlement that we conducted an internal investigation for and hired a forensic auditing, f- auditing firm, we determined, and the CPA firm really determined that there was a very, very significant fraud and embezzlement in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and once we finished, we actually kind of prepared a redacted version or modified version of the forensic audit report and provided it to local law enforcement authorities uh, to pursue um the former CEO um, criminally, um, w- which is underway right now. Um, I will say that in many instances, there was a period about I think it was about ten years ago now when uh, two Washington Post reporters did an investigation of fraud and embezzlement in, in nonprofit organizations, um, and they realized that there is a question on the ni- on the Form nine ninety the you know the annual information return that nonprofit tax exempt entities file with the IRS that asked essentially if you had any fraud or embezzlement in your organization. I forget exactly how it's worded. And they compared those publicly available 990s to instances that they knew about or could corroborate with fraud and embezzlement in nonprofits and found that in the vast majority of instances, the nonprofits never reported the fraud or embezzlement, even on their own 990s, they were obligated to do for obviously understandable reasons, that doesn't make it lawful, but understandable reasons why they didn't want that publicly disclosed. Um, I'm not saying in every instance, well, yes, if if it occurs and it meets the requirements of the Form 990 question, yes, you have to to check the box to disclose that there. But in terms of external reporting, you know, I've seen nonprofits all over the place. If you think that, you know, external reporting, whether it's uh, criminally or civilly, can be helpful in, for instance, getting a financial recovery, like a client is hoping in, in the criminal referral I talked about, that's obviously gonna be a no-brainer. But you're of course always balancing against the uh you know the negative uh publicity and, and public relations risk that comes along with, with such mm-hmm. disclosure. It looks like, you know, you, you didn't have good controls in place, which by the way, that client that had the hundreds of thousands of dollars embezzled. From them, they did not have good controls. Although those internal controls you talked about earlier, if those were in place, this could never have occurred. Certainly wouldn't have lasted very long. Certainly not to that extent. Um, so it can be embarrassing to just just say that you didn't have that. Um, but I will tell you, more often than not, I find that in most of these situations, there is no external reporting of of the the whistleblower findings.
1: Okay. And just out of curiosity, for an organization that ultimately, you know, undergoes a fraud, is aware of one, but doesn't disclose that on their 990, what are the potential ramifications or the consequences to that organization for
2: not reporting? Oh, I mean, it's a, great, it's a great question. You know, whoever signs the 990 is signing under penalty of perjury. Um, that being said, um, there's a lot of questions on the Form 990 effect. Uh, I don't know how many years ago now, maybe... Uh, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, the IRS overhauled the 990 and they added a lot of new sections, including the section on governance, where they ask if you're, you know, your board has adopted a number of different governance-related policies, one of which ironically is a whistleblower protection, <laughs> record retention policy, conflict of interest policy, et cetera. Um, it was controversial though, because if you check no, you know, the IRS believes that it's a best practice to have such policies and that organization, nonprofit, tax-exempt entities that have such policies are more likely to be compliant with the tax laws. But there's nothing in the tax laws governing tax-exempt uh, organizations, C3, c 6s C4s, whatever, that requires you to have such policies or that requires you to, you know, report fraud and embezzlement. So even if you check no, like, there's nothing the IRS can do about it except theoretically penalties for false Form 990 filing but they rarely enforce anything like that um and even here you know it's not like they're cross-referencing against news reports of fraud and mm-hmm. and so the practical reality is probably nothing would happen but i certainly w- would not want to be signing that form uh-huh. not- <laughs> check the box.
1: yeah with that uh, again we're, we're running up on 12 minutes here so we want to try to get through these last few questions centering around the investigation process, uh, which again, will be the focus of our part three series, but just wanted to get some initial questions addressed for the group. Um, So in following up on kind of, you know, what the first step is uh, to the whistleblower program in terms of the investigation process, Jeff, what's your first step in following up on a whistleblower allegation that's come in through the hotline or through your cloud-based solution, or even maybe just through a a direct reporting mechanism through the the CEO or C-suite?
2: So that's one thing I want to say is uh, a lot of times I've heard my clients, you know, staff, board members get caught up with this idea of a formal whistleblower complaint. Stephen came up in a recent investigation that we just wrapped up. Um, and in the recent investigation, there, there there was definitely no formal whistleblower complaint. There was no not there was no they don't, didn't even have a hotline or software or anything platform like that. Um, but there wasn't even a written complaint. It was just a conversation between an employee and the board chair alleging some problematic conduct regarding a supervisor. Um, And so no one would, I think, call that a formal complaint. It doesn't matter. And it needed to be. And it was. it wasn't handled as, as it should have been, but it, it was it was handled and it, it was listened to. Uh, but the point is don't get caught up on whether something's formal, whether it's through a particular system, whether it's um, uh, in writing or not. Um, if it's a whistleblower complaint, you gotta look into it, period. And we talked about earlier, we're not gonna repeat the, the issue of kind of where does it live and who's responsible. Uh, but to your question, in terms of how do you get started And I know this, again, sounds self-serving because I'm a lawyer, but having been through this so many times and having seen organizations do it without legal counsel, it's so important to involve, well, A, involve legal counsel, but legal counsel has experience conducting these investigations. They're really, they're complex, they're sensitive, Um, there's a lot of, you know process you know uh, established process that you should follow but there's also an art to it because it almost always now I'm not talking like a forensic audit that's different but a lot of this other stuff involves people involves talking to people interviewing people assessing credibility um that sort of stuff and and it's it it, in that way it's kind of as much an art as a science um and I've learned that a lot over the years but in terms of how to structure it If you bring in legal counsel, especially outside legal counsel, there's always this long running debate about whether in-house counsel gets the protection of the attorney-client privilege, because sometimes in-house counsel are giving legal advice, a lot of times they're giving business advice, and the law is pretty clear that the attorney-client privilege only applies when the in-house counsel is giving legal advice. And so because of that... um, in many organizations, it's kind of an established best practice to bring an outside counsel to conduct an internal investigation um, for the privilege purpose. But what that means, and so like in another investigation that I was involved in not too long ago, um, you know, I, I gave you the example of our firm retaining the forensic audit, uh, the accounting firm to do a forensic audit. And the reason that we have our firm retain them is that if the law, if the law firm, actually outside law firm, is retaining the firm that's providing some service like a forensic audit or I'm going to give you examples of PR, crisis communications consultants, HR consultants, Um, if the law firm is retaining them, then that is subject, it's kind of subject to the umbrella of the attorney-client privilege, and it's all covered by that. Then you can have sensitive privilege conversations with the outside accounting firm, the crisis communication consultant, the HR consultant, all of that, those conversations with them, with staff, with board members, it's all going to be protected by the attorney-client privilege. That means if later, say an aggrieved employee brings an EEOC charge or files a lawsuit or a government investigation ensues, federal, state, or local or whatnot, you have the benefit of the attorney client privilege. So you don't have to disclose everything that was found. And you may not want to. You may want to in some instances, you may not want to, but it's important that you retain that right. You know, I've seen a lot of these later. We we see federal investigations, congressional investigations that get involved in those a lot. You know, all of those can involve subpoena power. But the attorney-client privilege is generally going to stand up against all of those things in most instances, um, and that's really, really important. So, going through that right process, bringing in the legal counsel first, having legal counsel then retain whatever whatever other you know um, outside experts are being brought in to assist. And not everyone is going to involve any of those. Sometimes they involve none of those. But in those that are required, you really want to do that to get the benefit of the uh, of the attorney-client privilege, um, and then. You do want to have, you know, at least some fairly clearly articulated and clearly defined policies, usually as part of the whistleblower policy for how how this process should ensue. I'm not talking detailed step-by-step process, but you do generally want to codify this in your whistleblower policy or, or perhaps some other policy involving internal investigations that's board approved so that, you know, when something happens say whether it's a new CEO involved or whoever else you know you can look to that policy okay this is these are the steps we're supposed to follow uh, if you do that it's more likely that the organization is going to follow those best practices as opposed to not all right great
1: thank you thank you for that and I just wanted to I think you kind of actually addressed uh, my my next question when going through that um, but I just wanted to follow up on this because I think it was, it's really important um, but in terms of you know kind of structuring your or, or defining your investigation team prior to actually receiving a whistleblower allegation. Um, I wanted to see if you had any kind of tips, suggestions, and based on what you just said, it sounds like you would almost rely on the outside counsel because of that attorney-client privilege to then retain and work with a public relations firm to manage any sort of reputational risk, or, or bringing in an outside CPA firm to perform the, the detailed forensic investigation, if that's necessary, which actually take some of the burden, I guess, off of your clients to identify those types of firms or organizations. So I just wanted to confirm that that's sort of the path you would follow.
0: It's going
1: to
2: vary. It's going to vary. But I will say like yesterday I had a call with a client and a crisis communication team um, and a firm. um, And we were talking about some really sensitive information, you know, that, I really wanted to be protected by the attorney client privilege, but because we didn't retain them, my client retained them in advance, Um, you know, I had to be very careful in what I said on the call, knowing that, and there's a chance that this matter could turn to litigation, um, knowing that none of that's going to be protected. If I was just having a call with the CEO, that's going to be protected by the privilege with my client but bringing a, an outside pr firm that we didn't retain that that's problematic um yeah so in some instances i mean i've been doing this a long time i have my lists in my head and elsewhere of go to you know cpa firms and by the way your firm is one of those for sure um and um crisis communications and and PR firms and outside HR consultants and others, you know, that that I like to work with, I know are kind of what I consider like the A-team, but not every lawyer is going to have all of those. And a lot of clients are going to have their own, you know, go-to people. And that's fine. Just structure it so that outside counsel is retaining those for this purpose. And also keep in mind that doesn't mean that counsel has to be copied on every email or attend every meeting in order to get the protections. And it also doesn't have anything to do with the money flow. You can still, the the nonprofit can still pay those outside consultants directly. The money doesn't have to go through the law firm. And and we put that in the engagement letter as well.
1: Okay, right, yeah, that's
2: very important uh,
1: distinction to make there. All right, well, you know, Thank you so much for, for your thoroughness there, Jeff. I think you, you just, just answering the first question we had, I think you've kind of addressed all of the other questions that we had built in here about the investigation process. Uh, and I know we're coming up on, on three minutes here, um, so yeah, with that, I just wanted to thank you again so much for your time today, for for volunteering to be here with us. Um, you know, again, a lot of these questions came directly from our clients, so I hope everyone who's who's online today found this as valuable as I did.
2: And again, just thank you, Jeff, for for volunteering your time to be here with us today. Mac, you're welcome. Let me just add one thing. Um, so, look, these uh, whistleblower investigations can be expensive. Um, they can be very expensive very quickly sometimes sometimes you know we, we can do these much less expensively It just depends on the nature of the allegations and the severity and everything else, but keep in mind. At the end of the day, the most important part that comes out from every internal investigation that we ever do are the recommendations. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the recommendations are usually going to the board. Sometimes they're going to, you know, the CEO to administer at the management level. Uh, but a lot of times they're going to the board, even if it's for the board to make sure that management is implementing certain changes. You know, whether it's, you know, that big forensic audit report I talked to you about um, at the end, the, the accounting firm followed up with a whole series of internal control recommendations for the organization to implement, which are now in the process of, of being implemented. Um, you know, in others regarding employment matters and other things, you know, there's all sorts of recommendations that we've made, because there's always things that we find. There's deficiencies and policies and procedures and performance management training and anti-you know uh, unconscious bias and anti-harassment and discrimination training and all of those sorts of things. So to me, at the end of the day, you gotta learn from what happened with a whistleblower complaint. Obviously, deal with the the matter at issue if it means you have to terminate someone or or you, you pursue someone criminally for fraud and embezzlement, whatever. But at the end of the day, to me, the most important part are the recommendations to the organization to put structures and systems in place to kind of prevent this sort of thing from happening in the future. Yep.
1: Couldn't agree more. Um,
2: Yeah, you need to make
1: make sure that those recommendations are feasible, that they're actionable for the organization, and that you need to hold people accountable to make sure that they actually do follow up on implementing that corrective action so that, like you said, this doesn't just continuously happen, you know, over and over again as employees or boards are switched out. Yep. So yeah. thank you, thank you for that that wrap up thought. Again, really appreciate it, Jeff. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pull up my screen again just to share some resources with the group. And we're also going to launch that last attendance check-in and CPE word for the day. Um, you know again, as I mentioned, these will the slides will be provided um, uploaded to our website along with the recording of today, but I just wanted to touch on these briefly. Just some resources for the group. This first one is over the ACFE, Building a Best-in-Class Whistleblower Hotline Program. Uh, So again, that is the most popular method used right now just because it's easy to implement, been around for a long time. Um, So again, that just provides some resources to how to create that program. Also some, re- some links to the new COSO second edition fraud risk management guide, as well as the ISO 37002 whistleblower management systems. COSO and ISO, they do require you to, to purchase the full blown guidelines, uh, but there are executive summaries with some good uh, bullet points and some good information over the uh, kind of the general principles wrapped up in there. We've also got some resources to the GRF website that should look familiar to uh, what you saw in our last session. And also would encourage everybody to look at our podcast GRF on the go lots of great information going out there all the time and kind of shorter bites, um, you know, for your for your viewing pleasure. But with that, I just wanted to again thank you Jeff for being here with us today. Thank you to all of our attendees who took time out of your busy days to be with us. Um, And here's our contact information if you have any follow up questions, whether it's any of the questions we talked about or something that's top of mind for you that we didn't get the chance to touch on today please feel free to reach out to either of us directly. And again, thank you everybody for for being here today and to Jeff for volunteering your time really appreciate it. Thanks for having me Mac. Take care. Thank you everyone. (laughs)
0: Thank you for listening to the GRF On The Co. podcast. Visit our website at grfcpa.com for more information about the services we provide, the industries we serve, or to request a quote.